I don't know if you've ever seen any famous sibling rivalries play out where I say famous because, you know, sometimes, you know, if you, if you look at anybody that's famous, inevitably they have a sibling, right, that we don't know. <laughs> you know, it's that one that got left in the dust somewhere. Somebody went off and became big. And the other person's like, yeah, you know, I'm just used to, you know, that's, that's my brother, that's my sister, or that's our kid, or something like that. You know, you, you, there's this aspect of the person that goes off and gets noted for something uh, usually leaves behind an entire group of people that um, can't relate to all of the attention that's coming this person's way. Um, it, it, it's funny how it even plays out in different ways. I was just thinking about in, uh, I'm a basketball fan, as I've shared with you guys probably way too many times, an NBA fan. And um, right now, the guy that's considered to be like, the, you know, the greatest shooter in the league and stuff is a guy named Steph Curry. Um, how many of you know, have, how many of you heard of Steph Curry before? Okay. If his name didn't sound just like the one I just said, how many of you have heard of Seth Curry? Okay. One or two of you. <laughs> and those of you that have heard Seth Curry's name before probably thought they were saying Steph. You're like, oh yeah, I've heard of him. Uh, but Seth is a multimillionaire NBA player too. So even in his own right, he would be a famous person. An accomplished person. It's very difficult to achieve the level that he's achieved, but he will forever be in his brother Steph's shadow for all that Steph has accomplished and the team notoriety that he has and the championships and all these kinds of things. And so there's something in our hearts when we become aware of that, we feel bad for Seth. You know, like, oh, poor guy. He's only making $10 million a year instead of $25 million a year. Oh, poor guy. He's only having to sign 150 autographs wherever he goes instead of 300 or whatever the case may be. Uh, but, but the reality is, is that um, it's difficult, I would think, for someone to grow up in a famous sibling's shadow. Now, the reason why I'm going into all of this is not to point out the Curry family to you. But to uh, set up the stage for the letter that we're going to be getting in in the New Testament, because James, which is uh, towards the end of the New Testament, the letter of James is written by a man who had an extremely famous brother who is constantly living probably in his brother's shadow. And we don't have a lot of information about how well that was going or how well that wasn't going. But uh, there is, it's very telling that James ends up being an author in the New Testament because his famous brother uh, was literally perfect. You know, like if you think Seth Curry growing up is watching his brother Steph do no wrong. Imagine growing up as the half brother of Jesus, the creator of everything, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. You know, if he messed up at all, it was because he was human, probably tripping over his own feet, but he didn't talk back to his mother. He didn't forget to clean his room or any of those kinds of things. Jesus was God and is God and is perfect and flawless. And James gets to see that in front of him every single day. Yeah, Jesus is perfect. James, why can't you grow up and be just like your brother? Because uh, I have a human father, I guess. <laughs> James is losing the battle right out of the gate. But James is a half-brother of Jesus, and it's interesting. We don't really know how he grew up. We don't really know um, if that was a, uh, a, a sore spot for him or if it was great. We don't know, but we do know that he didn't really believe that his brother was who he claimed to be until much later on. 
And so you can almost imagine that even Jesus says, I believe it's Jesus says in the, somebody says in the New Testament that uh, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. In other words, you don't, you don't um, get recognized for who you really are with the people that know you best. And it's no surprise to us that Jesus coming out of Nazareth, most of the unbelievers are the ones that watched him grow up and go, oh, come on, there's no way. This kid we saw playing, I don't know what they played back then. We have a Gaga pit that's of Israeli heritage for the youth building. Maybe they were playing Gaga growing up. But, um, you know, we, we watched him play. We watched him, uh, you know, hang out with our kids and everything. There's no way he is the savior that we've, been, that we've had prophesied all these centuries. And so James is growing up in an environment where he's kind of being fed that all the time. Mom and dad are convinced of that at a very early time period. And so they're probably saying, hey, look, whether you believe it or not doesn't change the fact that it's true. But we do know that James turns a corner at some point and he writes a letter that has been one of the most helpful to us in terms of practical Christian living and uh, is actually considered the um, Proverbs of the New Testament because of its, uh, its content of wisdom. And so I love this book. Um, I taught through some of it probably like 10 years ago, so I figured you've all forgotten it, hopefully, right? No, I just shouldn't say that. It's just for my own ability to move forward without feeling like I'm Johnny Repeat here, but uh, we're going to try to dive back into this. Now, my time on the pulpit is kind of spread out, and so this will take us a little while, and, and hopefully it's not too belaboring to do a little bit of review every month when we come back to it. But I love the book of James because not only is it very practical, not only is it very helpful, but I love it for who it's authored by. Because you don't live in Jesus' shadow as the half-brother, and then when you've come to your... Uh, point where you're actually saying he literally says it in verse one he says i am a bond servant of jesus christ he doesn't start off by saying i know what i'm talking about because i grew up in his house i know him you know better than you do so nanny nanny boo boo he says i am a bond servant of the one i used to call brother and it's an amazing transformation if we just put ourselves in james situation in our shoe in his shoes can you imagine the leaps you have to go through in terms of growing and comprehension and understanding? When James encounters his risen brother, how are you going to turn away from that after he's been crucified and killed? James grew up very quickly in his faith. We have no idea whether or not he was a fairly mature person or anything like that. But if you, you, you go from disbelief to belief just like that and calling your brother your master... That is a quick grow-up process. That is overnight maturity. You know, we have a tendency to listen closer to people who have been through a thing. We, uh, we, we can hear all the financial principles people talk about. You should invest in these markets, and you should diversify your part, portfolio, and they throw facts and figures out. And it's not that we disagree with it. It just hasn't hit home to us, and so we don't really imagine ourselves really doing that. It's not something that we've really bought into. Then all of a sudden, you meet your cousin, and your cousin did the same thing, and now he's loaded. He's got eight cars and all these kinds of things. You go, maybe I should have listened back then. Maybe I could have done that too. And it starts to mean something. Why? Because somebody you know went through it. Somebody's story related to you. And so James has gone through a thing. James has gone through this denial. We don't know how vehemently, but we know that he was denying the total reality of who his brother was. 
And now he's come to accept it and he's come to submit his life to it and surrender his life to it, to the, uh, the, to the fact that he would open his letter by saying, I am the bond servant of the one I grew up around. It's an amazing uh, acknowledgement. In verse 4, we get perhaps the key to this entire letter in chapter 1. And so I want us to start there real briefly, and then we'll come back and, and review um, as many verses as we have time to get through. This is our advanced Sunday this morning, so my time is limited here because we want to be able to ask the men to stick around immediately after the, the sermon and um, we invite our guys to get a little extra dose of teaching and instruction uh, in a way that we think that uh, applies to them a little bit more pointedly. And so we ask our men to please stick around and give us 10 or 15 minutes of your time uh, immediately following the service. So we appreciate you doing that. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it simply says this, Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect <clears throat> and complete lacking nothing. Now this word perfect is going to throw us off in our modern understanding of it, but, but don't think too much about it being flawless. Think of it being another word that's used in that sentence is complete or mature or grown up, useful, valuable. So the scripture says, let endurance have this completing process in your life. Let this thing you've got to struggle through, this thing you've got to grow through, let it have a result in your life that grows you up, that makes you stronger, more complete, more mature. Let it do that to you so that you may be also complete or mature or this translated word here, perfect, lacking nothing. I think James is identifying for us uh, what we've come to see throughout the centuries, and especially in the last several decades, I would say, is that I believe the greatest problem that we have in the Church of Jesus Christ universal is a lack of spiritual maturity. That there are plenty of topics out there that we can rail against. There's a lot of things that we have to do battle against. There's a lot of subjects that we preach against, but none perhaps more critical than the fact that the believers in Jesus Christ who claim to follow him, myself included, have a tendency to, to lag behind in our growing upness, if I can invent a word, that we are behind in the fact that we are willing to take on the things that the Christian life calls us to, that we're willing to let um, the circumstances we have to endure have its perfect work in us, that it's going to grow us up to maturity. Now, I've grown up in church and I've uh, perhaps gotten a little too accustomed to the way we do things and stuff. And one thing I always noticed when I was growing up as a teenager, because I, this bothered me because I was a teenager, and so it, I took it to heart personally and stuff. I get why it happened, but it just bugged me as a teenager. Why? Because I was looking for something to rebel against. It's what we do. I mean, teens? No rock fist going on? Okay. It's an 80s thing. Sorry. That's my best Billy Idol impression. Kids are like, Billy who? And so when I was uh, looking for something to complain about, the one thing that always got me is when the preacher would be on a roll and he's preaching about things that would get the congregation riled up and amening left and right when they were, by and large, the most quiet congregation in the world. Um, I'll, I'll explain what I mean here in a second. I grew up in Maine and I was down in Auburn and stuff, so we don't have a big, you know, Southern Baptist culture where people are spinning hankies and getting all fired up and everything. We're pretty much, what do we do in church? We sit there and like, give it to us. 
I'll acknowledge that it was great by showing up again next week. You're not going to hear an amen out of me. And that's what we do. And so I noticed that when the pastors started getting on a tear about the things teenagers should be doing with their lives and obeying their parents and, you know, doing all these things and not doing that and everything, all the parents of teens turned into Southern Baptist towel-waving, freaking out, Woohoo! you give it to a preacher! Why? Because he was fighting their battle. And it was a little bit more removed. It, was, it wasn't so close to home for the adult because they wanted somebody else's behavior to change, so they got right behind that. Now, I know why the preacher did those things, and I think he should have. I know why parents got excited about that now that I'm raising teens. It's nice to have someone come alongside you and help you make your case a little bit. But at the same time, it just proved a point to me that we love to support and encourage the type of truth, hard-hitting truth, that doesn't hard-hit me between the eyes. If everyone else needs to pay, pay attention and listen to what the preacher is saying, I'm going to say, you give it to him, you give it to him. And it's real easy for us to do that in the political arena. It's easy for us to do that in the social arena that happens outside these four walls. I mean, that's right, you go, preacher. And then when it comes to, I don't really want to hear about my stuff, though. That demonstrates that we are, by and large, lagging behind when it comes to being willing to grow. And I think James is going to help us see that as we spell this out in the scriptures Today. Now, this letter is coming just lining up wise in our Bibles, not chronologically, but lining up wise right on the heels of the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews has a lot to say. The main theme of Hebrews is about Christ is above everything and he's beyond everything and he's worthy of all. But it also delves into a lot of um, discipline ideas and uh, and chastening uh, God's children. God loves us so much that he corrects us and that kind of thing. And so I find it interesting that James is going to hit us between the eyes after we've just gotten a dose of this from the book of Hebrews. Let me share with you just a few verses here from Hebrews chapter 5. The scripture says, there's much more we'd like to say about this. This is about the things of Christ, about who Jesus is. But it's difficult to explain, especially since you're spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Ouch. Now I know why there's this controversy in theology. This is just coming to me now. Nobody knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. They speculate that it was Paul, it could have been Peter, something like that. They, we always, if we're, if we're educated in our theology, we say, the writer of Hebrews says, now I know why he didn't want to put his name on the bottom of the letter because he's just giving it to people. He's like, I'd tell you this, but you're a bunch of babies, signed anonymous. <laughs> now it's just coming to me. You've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone else to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. The writer, the anonymous writer of Hebrews is saying, man, at this point, I should be able to go even deeper with the things that I cannot wait to share with you about Christ. But we're still stuck at the starting point. And you've been at this for so long. What's taking so long? Let's get beyond this. Let's grow. And James is going to follow up that theme by saying, listen, by and large, the church is struggling with immaturity. The church is having a hard time taking the deeper things of Christ because we haven't mastered the basics to which I say, ouch, I'm looking in the mirror going, that is exactly true. You just send me a couple of back-to-back -back snowstorms and I turn into the worst heathen you've ever imagined. 
down in the dumps, ready to end it all. Can't stand it. We don't have to live here. What do I? And then we come into the office and Dory is still sunshiny. Like, stop being such a happy Christian. It's not fair. But James tells us in verse 4, this key little word, let endurance have its maturing effect on you. Why the broken record on testing and trials? Why do preachers always talk about, you know, trials, this and that? Because they never end. Because we're human, they're going to be everywhere. It's part of our testing. We have to just chalk it up and say, okay, I know I'm supposed to go through tests as a believer in Christ, as a child of the king. It's just part of it. We say that to our students, don't we? To our kids, we go, I don't want to take a test. Why do I have to? It's just part of it. How do we know if you've mastered the material until you can put it down in a test? But when we become adults, we're like, I shouldn't have to go through this anymore. I'm a little old for this. And James is saying, let endurance have its perfect work. Let that testing produce that thing in you. There's, so, so one aspect of to why we're always on a broken record about enduring trials is because they're always coming. And that's sent from just living in a sinful world. But it's also being, as we just discovered in, in Hebrews, it's also being a child of a loving father who's going to continue to test us, to raise us up and to mature us and grow us. But also it's because we turn a, we turn a trial, we turn everything, let me say it a different way, we turn everything in our lives into a trial, don't we? We have this sinful bent that even when something's going good in our lives, we have a tendency to either wait for the other shoe to drop or we go out and create um, uh, a bigger issue. We call that in counseling a life-complicating sin, like you're over-complicating a circumstance because you've reacted to it sinfully. You know, even when good things happen, someone could drop a $10,000 check in your lap and you'd be like, well, I didn't see this coming. Then you go to the bank and you're like, hey, I need to cash this. And like, we're sorry, we're out of that much cash. We can't do that. And then instantly it's like, come on. How long am I supposed to endure this suffering? We just said, come back in an hour and we'll be, but do you know what that's going to do to the rest of my day? That's an exaggeration, but isn't it true to some extent, that even when there's something we should be receiving as a blessing, we have a tendency to just be ourselves about it, which isn't a compliment, right? We turn everything into a trial or a drama. So that's why we continue to focus on what the Scripture says about how to endure testing, because it's everywhere. It's constant. It's like being on repeat on your playlist. It's just going to keep coming and revisiting and haunting you. And because we are governed, we are led, we are superintended by a loving father, he's going to allow that repeat button to stay stuck until you finally get it and you're ready to move on so you're not stuck on milk, as Hebrews said. Now, I want to just cover a little bit about the tone of James. I know we're not getting too much into all the scripture of this yet, and there's a good chance we're not going to get to this time, which means I've already written my next sermon, which makes me very, very happy. Um, but uh, I, I want you to hear this from, from, from a perspective of how we listen to things now. You know, James is coming from a Jewish traditional background where he's got a clear runway to hit us right between the eyes and the cultural norm of that time period, if they grew up in a traditional Jewish context, was a command is given, obedience is expected. It's, it's just blanket. It's laid out. That's the way it's supposed to be. James is coming from that same exact perspective. Yes, he's in Christ now. And yes, he is understanding to a greater extent what grace is. But he is also willing to share with us, you guys just got to do this. 
No more questions about this. No more sitting on the fence. Let's just move on with this. And he drops at least 50 imperative statements in his letter. And those imperatives are just command, period. Like we say to our kids, I want this done, period. If you don't say that to your kids, I encourage you this week as part of your homework to say that more often to your kids. I, I, you know, I say that just because I just think that that's one of the most lacking things in parenting today. This is not a sermon on parenting. I'm going to shut up now and move on. But imperatives aren't a bad thing. But just understand your audience. And so as we share a letter like James, if we share imperatives and commands from the scriptures in 2017, what I have to understand and what we all have to acknowledge as we try to reach those around us is that our sensitivity, I'll use that word, to hearing commands and someone being so locked in dogmatic on truth is really starting to get very distasteful to us as a society. A, we don't believe, by and large, that truth is truth, that there is just a thing as right and wrong. And so that's becoming less and less palatable to us to hear people come out and say, well, that's just flat out wrong. <laughs> don't say that. You can't say that anymore. We've got to reason things out. We've got to let people come to their own conclusions. We've got to hold their hand and walk them to it. That's really what we've become as a society. There's an importance in being a Christian. I think Pastor Bill was touching on this a couple weeks back about the way we communicate things and using metaphor and story and things to bring people along to truth. There is, a, there is a, um, uh, an intelligence or um, being smart about going after communicating the truths of the gospel in ways that people hear today. But just because our ears have become too sensitive to dogmatic truth does not make the truth less true. Now, I know we beat that like a drum here at Faith, but it's so important. Every commercial you see, every show you watch, everything, even the ones that are trying to be somewhat wholesome, are still buying into this philosophy of follow your heart. You'll make the best determination what's best for you. Everyone else's truth is up to them to wrestle through and everything, but you're going to make the best decision for you. James isn't hitting the brakes on imperative statements. He's going to say, look, I am tired of us not growing up, so I'm just going to say it like it is, and you're going to have to hear it. Might have been easier to hear back in his day. I don't know. I think we're all we're born in sin, and so we have this rebellion that doesn't want to submit and to surrender to truth in our flesh. The Holy Spirit has to work through that and to calm that down in our lives so that we have more spiritual victories than we do flesh failures. But James isn't slowing down on what he's going to say. In fact, picking up after, after Hebrews, he's going to talk about some, some dad stuff as well. I'm going to lay some of these out for us. And you tell me if you've ever either raised a child or you've taught in a class, or you've been to the McDonald's play place, or you have breathed the same air that other children have breathed ever before, or if you've ever heard the words children or kid, um, then these might sound familiar. And think about these are subjects and topics that James is going to talk to the church about in this letter, almost chapter by chapter. In chapter 1, he gets right out of the gate saying that we're too impatient. We don't let endurance have its perfect work. We don't let the trials that come into our life carry out the process that they're meant to in our life. And so we're like, I don't like this. It feels yicky. I don't, I don't want to wait for this. I can't stand it. So we have to, t we have to you know, it's, James has to talk to the children saying, now listen, we're supposed to be more patient now. 
Don't be too, you know, hurried up. Don't get too frantic. Just calm down. Don't jump to conclusions. In chapter 2, he, he addresses us talking but not living out truth. We say the right things, but we're not backing it up with our character. We're putting on a good show, or we're not the same person out there that we are over here, and that kind of thing. And so he's talking about a, a consistency that, that, is, uh, that is a result of spiritual maturity. So has anybody ever talked to children about being the same person that they're supposed to be when no one's looking and then being that same person in public and, and that kind of thing. He also says um, that in chapter 3, he says that we are like a ship being steered with this tiny little rudder called our tongue. And we do not control that little rudder enough. So it starts steering our ship wherever we feel like it should go instead of setting on course where it should go. And that's chapter 3. <laughs> This frog doesn't feel like it's leaving anytime soon, so I apologize. This is the frog I always get before the first song if I'm singing back there. We're getting ready to go, and it's like, okay, I can't sing now. Don't know why. So James is saying, listen, little children, bite your tongue. Don't say everything that pops into your head. Don't say everything that your black little heart is trying to generate to come out of your mouth. And he's talking to a church of grown-ups, so we think. In chapter 4, he says, you are gouging each other's eyes out. You're pulling each other's hair. You're freaking out over tiny little toys. Now, he doesn't say it in that language, but he literally starts off chapter 4 by saying, what is causing murder among you? Now, the church and the different people that he's writing to, he's not getting reports of, of actual murder. There isn't any headlines that are happening. But he's saying relationship murder is taking place amongst the church because you are fighting with each other like little babies, like somebody who took the Barbie and you weren't ready for it to give it up and you are going to freak out. Now, it never happens in the small household, but what I hear that happens in so many other households is you hear bloody murder being screamed downstairs in the girls' bedrooms where five girls share one room. Like I said, it doesn't happen in, in the small household. And you're thinking, okay, somebody fell off the tallest bunk bed, somebody cracked their head, something like that, and then you find out she took my Barbie. And you're going, and it, we can't relate to it because it's such an over-exaggerated freak-out for something so small. Well, apparently we're not immune to that because James is trying to deal with that in the church. He says, what's causing these fights and these quarrels among you? Isn't it the lusts that are, and he says, that are waging war in your members. They're literally coming out of your physical being that you're just ready to do battle. And then he closes off the letter in chapter 5 with a, uh, an argument about focusing on collecting material toys. You know, having that same kind of possessive, you know, it all matters in the here and now, and if you take it from me, I'm going to really lose my mind and that sort of thing. And so James, in his letter, is really trying to grow the church up. James, I'm sure, regrets not understanding who his brother was as he watched him grow. Or as he understood that the ministry that was happening in public was real, and that everything that his brother said he would do, which is allow himself to be crucified, he would be gone for three days, and then at the end of those three days would rise again and would come and present himself to his church and say, this is why you can carry on. And so when, by the time all that happened, James gets it, and he has an immediate grow-up session, like, okay, now I'm going to pay attention. And he was mature, and he was a leader in the church and all those things. But he's saying to us, don't wait for those extreme circumstances. For one, that exact circumstance isn't going to happen again. But two, 
Don't just put it off and say, well, maybe I'll find out that Jesus is who he says he is when he finally does the miraculous in my life. He, he would tell us, you're wasting your time. I'm giving you the opportunity to let those trials and those testings that you're going to face, either the ones that are coming to you from the outside or the ones that you're creating yourself, if you let God work them through you, it will grow you up to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ. And so that helps set the tone for this letter. That's what we're going to do for the coming months. We're going to break this down piece by piece. We're going to find out what godly wisdom is all about. We're going to talk about how to just see these trials in a different light and how it's really not rocket science. It really has a lot to do with what we're willing to surrender. Do you know how much of the Christian life we don't do isn't because we can't figure out what to do? We just don't want to do it. I know what you're saying, Lord, and I've seen other people blessed by it, and I've seen all that, but you're, you know, you're, just, you're, you're, you're showing up in my front yard, and I'm just not sure I want to go there yet. And so hopefully James will work that out of us. Hopefully we'll look in the mirror and, uh, and be willing to change what we see. So we're going to close our time now so that we can uh, give the, the next 10 or 15 minutes to our men. Uh, if you would, please join me in a word of prayer. Uh, why don't we stand, and then we'll dismiss.